Just to recap, last time the questions that we had were, if you gathered with a group of young believers, what would you teach them first? Remember that? It was good. I liked your answers. Then we talked about if you had a couple of friends locked in a conflict, what do you do when they keep griping to you about each other instead of talking to each other? And then I asked you about your dream jobs. If you could work any job for a year, what would, you, what would you do? And I've already changed my answer in my heart. Can't believe I tried to lock myself into one thing. So now here we go with question number four. When Jesus... Oh, can you full screen that? Hit the present button. At the top there and then scroll forward to the uh, appropriate slide. Keep going. We're on question four. Next one, next one, this one. Here we go. All right, so here's question four. When Jesus cleared the temple, he made a whip out of cords, which indicates that it was a deliberate action and not an uncontrolled fit of anger. Am I right about that? So, built into my question is stuff like this. What was so upsetting about what was happening at the temple? That's one part. And then what are some injustices in contemporary life that you think still anger Jesus so much that he would like to, quote, clear the temple? All right. Discuss. I got one group that says it was obviously people were on their cell phones, and that's what made Jesus so upset. Anybody have a response to... Wow, it's like, let's make a deal. Anybody have a response to the first part of the question? What was happening that was upsetting? First of all, the temple back then was real sacred. Really, you know, our church should be that way today, but it's really not. But getting to the point, they were money changing in the temple. And that was uh, really a no-no to go into the temple and do that. And when Jesus went in there and seen that they were doing all these things in the temple, that he became, people say, angry, but I don't think he was angry. I think he just, he just... Come unglued, maybe, <laughs> but he just put them in their place right quick and threw them out. Okay. Another one? I actually don't think it was anger at all. I think it was a prophetic act where he wound the cords together to, to a prophetic act to, to declare judgment on the old covenant system. Same as cursing the fig tree. They weren't producing what they were supposed to produce. Let's curse them. Let's take them out. They're going to be destroyed so that I can make place for the new covenant. Yep. Prophetic judgment. What else we got? Other groups? I believe it was twofold. That it was prophetic because he's declaring the kingdom and showing the Father for who he really is, but he's also angry because he sees people who are supposed to be walking close to the Father and know what the Father's heart is, and they've turned it, like Tammy was saying, into a way to extort the people. Here's the follow-up quote from Jesus, right? He says, My house, it is written, My house shall be called a what? House of prayer, but you have made it a 
den of thieves. Interesting. So here's my question. You've got people traveling a long distance. Should they have to bring their own animals a long distance? Or is it okay for them to purchase animals for sacrifice on site? Would it have been wrong? I didn't do nothing. (laughs) The fact that they took advantage of the people who could not afford a more expensive offering knew what they could afford when they got there to only find out that they could not afford the offering that they should have been able to give because the people selling the sacrifices were marking the prices up so they could line their pockets in God's house. Price gouging. Yes. Price gouging. Price gouging. So greed, huh? Interesting. What else we got? Are we ready to transition to the second part? Are there things, hey, are there things happening around us today that Jesus would similarly... Uh, flip those tables over. Oh boy. I'm questioning, should I hand you the mic or just say, we all heard that. Eric, what do you guys got in your group? Eric says, stop it. No, I didn't. Is this... Yes. What do you guys got? They were paying attention. One I said was that God would be very, I think he would beat some people, <laughs> not beat, but um, just like the sex trafficking that's going in the world. Like, I, he, that's, I mean, I imagine that just tears his heart. Right. Right. Um, I want to say something. I, I, saw, I feel like uh, I saw our heart. Like a church now, look people for what you had. Like a, it's not like a, for oh, who you, what are your profession? What are, how much money you make? How you make? I don't think I'm going to be happy with that. Right. No. Nah, we're not humbles. Right. That's what I feel like. So you think that it offends or it's out of, it's out of touch with God's heart when we value people for... How much money they make, where they live, who they know, that kind of stuff, instead of who they really are. Another one. (laughs) One of the problems was that they were extorting and demanding something of people that didn't have it. So I would question, is it possible that any time we demand a righteousness of someone that doesn't have the capacity for it, Let's just put it in uh, someone who's struggling with their sexuality and we push them away and reject them rather than understanding the path they've walked and realize they're incapable at this point in time. There would be a lot of social issues that we would line up in one place, but do we have the mercy to walk with the person from where they are to where God wants them to be rather than just judging them and demanding them to be where we are now? That's good. That's good. Can I summarize in my own language? When we expect people who are separated from Jesus to look like Jesus instead of giving them Jesus, loving them. 
Do we have one more, or should I move on to the next question? Who, who, what group hasn't said enough here so far? All right, next question. Android can do it if you just wait. Question five. Doesn't Apple kind of stink since Steve Jobs died? I'm just kidding. That's not the question. Okay, question five. Throughout the whole Bible, God makes such a big deal of sharing meals together. Why? That's interesting, right? So, why is sharing meals so important to God? Bonus question, what's your favorite food? <laughs> and then, how can we apply this priority that God seems to have in the Bible towards shared meals? How can we, do a better, a, a, how can we practice that in a way that we gain the benefit He intends? So, question one is, why is sharing meals so important to God? All right, Evelina has a response. If you share meals within the church, why then it helps you communicate with one another and love one another. If you share meals outside the church, you help those that are homeless and don't have anything to eat. What else you guys got? Why is it such a priority for God? You got it first. (laughs) She's going to say it. (laughs) We said to show different perspectives in lives, you know, and to show knowledge, like share it. Right. Yeah. Bringing people of differences together? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Great job. (laughs) Did you actually Google that? No. Good. (laughs) You? Yeah. Um, we were talking about how it's it's not just feeding, it's pouring, it's kind of like pouring yourself, like it could be as an alms spiritually depleted here, let me pour myself out to you. Mm-hmm. It's a connect connection in many ways more than just meals, it's right. unity, it's serving, sure, e- it's serving each other. She said it's a lot like washing each other's feet, it's serving each other. If one person's hungry, if one person's depleted, the other one pours, feeds them. Ultimately, it's the most basic human need, and God is the most basic human need as well. So, it, like, the metaphors of them back and forth of God being, like, throughout Scripture of God being the one who sustains, feeds, provides. Right. He's consistently done it from Genesis all the way through. He's always been, I mean, he's always been the sustainer. So it's just natural to use it in a very physical way. So the sharing of the meal is sharing the basic need for the human body to exist, the basic need for the human soul to live forever. Otherwise, we're temporal and we'll die, physically and spiritually. That's pretty deep, bro. The interesting thing, Garth, is like, I don't care how deep we are, these, these, these questions of purpose and meaning in life and what is life for they are all trumped by what's for dinner if you're hungry (laughs) 
they volunteered like, you. It, yeah, they basically volunteered me. Um, it's like when you like, it's not even just like eating the meal, but also like preparing the meal. Everybody comes together and works together to prepare it, and then they get to enjoy it in fellowship in doing it. It's not just just eating the meal. It's also like a spiritual thing. She said that we have to eat like physically we have to eat but we also have to eat physically like spiritually so it's kind of like an analogy of like you do both at the same time and also humans are just like wired to enjoy fellowship so even if you're like disagreeing on everything else you can at least agree on not the fellowship and also like worship is kind of like the same thing you don't always agree that you need worship and you need fellowship and my favorite food is my mom's shrimp alfredo anyone else answering that question I think it's uh, uh, like in the book of Acts where when you come together um, and share a meal, everybody talks. Uh, So you find out what's the needs of others. You find out the needs of the, uh, if we're a body of believers, so you find out what the need in that body is. And um, just as Linda was sharing, uh, you know, you know what to pray for. You know how to pray for that person, how to lift them up. And, so, and it also gives an opportunity to find out your dislikes. You know, I don't like peas, so we don't make peas at the next meal or something like that. But, um, you know, it just gives you a chance to uh, fellowship and get, close, get to know each other uh, on the, at the uh, simplest form, which is eating. And um, so that's what I got. I think it's interesting that, it, well, I just think, uh, well, I was just thinking of something that was interesting to me is according to the book of John, the first thing that Jesus did was took his disciples to a celebration, a wedding. Yep, a wedding feast. A feast, yeah, that lasted. Not like our receptions last for a few hours, but days and days, so. That gets us into alcohol territory. We're not touching it today. Oh. I'm just playing <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Jesus gave us a meal. Like the early church was gathered around a meal. And like the modern church is gathered facing this direction with the pulpit right there. Something to think about. Meals in, oh, I'm sorry. Meals had covenantal significance. This is why Jesus was so upset when, when, when not Jesus. That's why the Pharisees were so upset when Jesus ate with sinners. Because the very act of eating with sinners was he was covenanting with them. They also had this belief that if I'm eating, he was accepting and well, it was a place, yes, they were, and he was creating a relationship with them. They also had this belief that if I'm eating meat and you're eating cheese, we can't do it at the same table lest our thoughts mix and, defile, and violate that commandment about the goat being boiled in its mother's. So, they, so there was no way, there, there was this idea that when we're eating together, our thoughts are mixing, we're communing together. I don't know that our meals today can have the covenantal significance that they had in Bible times. But I'm, there are there are there are other ways that we can. There is the belonging and the acceptance. Then we would stop eating with certain people that we we would we would have a hard time covenanting with someone. Well, like this is this has always been an intriguing question to me because I see the importance of meals in the Bible. Then you pair Jesus eating with sinners. Then you pair the instruction in the New Testament about if, if someone is claiming 
to be a believer yet living directly in opposition to that while still claiming to walk under the blessing of the Lord, then you're not even supposed to eat with them. And, and so it's, it's, it's been like a little confusing to me. Like, how does that all work together? Um, uh, but I'm wondering if just like what you're saying, if, if meals foster and communicate harmony, um, like if you, if you've ever tried to share a meal with someone that you are not at, um, that you're at aught with, it's, it's a very uncomfortable setting. You don't feel safe. You don't, and you don't want to eat, you know? So I'm, I'm just wondering if, if part of that is, um, an opportunity for harmony or to communicate or, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud. Can I summarize that? When you and I eat together, we communicate to each other that we are at peace, that things are well with us. So if you have a bone to pick with me or if you have conflict with me or if you have a critique or a criticism to, to deal with with me and I set that up as a lunch meeting, that's just setting up indigestion as a lunch meeting. That's like actually a violation of a biblical protocol, which is go leave your gift at the altar, be reconciled to your brother, then share that, that meal. Also, when some men came from uh, James to, uh, who had t- hung out with you know, the apostle James, they, and then Peter hears them, he pulls back and stops eating meals with these Gentiles, and Paul gets up in public and rebukes Peter, doesn't care that the whole church back in Jerusalem thinks something. Doesn't care. You guys are violating the gospel, says Paul. In front of everyone, confronts him. Because by not sharing a meal, he was giving away the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Okay, we've spent, I think actually, it's noon. Can we just squeeze one more question in? Oh, thank you. Divide and conquer is a classic military strategy. If an army is fighting each other, they cannot effectively fight the real enemy. As Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So how has the demonic kingdom used that strategy against the church? And how has it affected you personally? And what is God's strategy and solution? One, two, three, go. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I guess you were. Say what you told me. All right. Just say what you told me. No, first off, well, you got it. They're not ready. Sure, they are. They're ready. All right. That's kind of confusing, but the way I see it, we have too many nationalities in this world. God knew what He was doing when He created all of us. And, of course, it was going to affect every one of us. But I think God's solution and strategy was if he created all of us different nationalities, the solution is if I can get every one of us, every nation, every creation to worship just one God, him, That's his solution. His strategy, he hasn't figured that out yet because it hasn't happened. That's the solution he wants. 
But his strategy will not work because you're still going to have him worshiping animals, Allah, and all kinds of different people. And we all know there's only one God. You cannot convince a whole world that there's only one God. Oh, it's coming. The only, it's coming. But every time something happens and every time something goes wrong, what's the first thing you say? Oh, God. Israel Caleb. I didn't say I wanted to. I don't care. Give your answer. <laughs> um, he um, pulls us from God and then... Who does? Devil. So you're saying the... So you're saying the first, the way the demonic divides and conquers, the first division he tries to work is to separate us from our Heavenly Father. Yeah. And then from each other. All right? What else we got? I think one way that I've witnessed it, the way he uses it, is to get... Just a, 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 some, some type of small disagreement where we're still friends. And then we individually create a false narrative. And, and I build this whole case where you, you, where you move from being a friend to someone who's against me. And then we're divided because we can't come to agreement because you see things, you're just unreasonable or whatever. But we both create this false narrative about what it is. And the solution is to get together, be vulnerable. This is this is how I'm seeing it. This is how I'm experiencing it. How are you seeing it? How are you experiencing it? And and working and allowing and being willing to say, ah, ninety percent of what I believed is not true. The ten percent might have been true. And yeah, can we work on this or whatever? But being willing to be vulnerable and transparent and humble enough to say, I was really way off. My normal is not your normal, and that's okay. Okay, I've been volunteered. Okay, um, there was a teacher in the REACH program. His name is Rich Bartholomew. He's a pastor, and he showed up in class one morning, and he said, so who created enmity? Okay, so host- enmity, another word for that is hostility. And, of course, majority of the answer was, well, the devil, of course, because we see how people treat each other. And he said, well, let's go to Genesis. So Genesis three fifteen. God is speaking to the serpent, which is also the enemy, and he's saying, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman and also you and her offspring. And so he's speaking prophetically of Jesus, of course, but he's also putting a barrier that's supposed to be, man is supposed to carry between him and the enemy, who is Satan. And the enemy is doing throughout history what he's done with all the things that God has made. He's twisting, he's distorting, he's deceiving and so the barrier that is supposed to be between, be between man and Satan, he is twisted and he's putting it nation against nation, um, church against church, people against people. He's using it so that we view each other as the enemy rather than remembering who the enemy really is. So we were actually born into a war we are meant to fight, but you're not my enemy, right? Flesh and blood, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. So if it has flesh and blood, it's not your problem. Which means most of the things that we think of as our problem are rooted in a basic lie. Oh my goodness. What else we got? 
This one or that one? Was that, was that a comment or? or? Statement. Question. Statement. Yeah, it's a question and statement. I did great in English. <laughs> what I do well with a single sentence unexplained. What is the bait of Satan? And then Brian. John Bevere. <laughs> John Bevere's like, I'm not, no. I'm just a guy. No, it's... um. The bait of Satan is offense. He gets us to believe. There we go. That's what I was looking for. When we get offended, hello. <laughs> um, one of the ways um, that that this happens is through lies, and it generally starts with lies that you believe about yourself. And then, as you grow and get older, then those lies you it's, it becomes almost a familiar voice. It can become a familiar voice in your head, and then you start to believe the lies about others. And so, um, yeah, and so the the strategy and solution is to pray for those that use you, and uh, I can't remember how the whole scripture goes, but anyway, pray, bless those. Yes, yeah, and so so what I've found to do, um, I've been in, more than one situation in my life where people have been against me, had, a, had something against me, but I had nothing against them. And I tried to help reconcile that, and that actually, that doesn't work. So you, if, if, if you don't have an offense against someone, but they have it against you, you can't reconcile their offense. And so, yeah, only they can, only they can reconcile that. And so what I found that helps me is to pray, just pray for them and bless them. And whatever I see that I want to see the Lord do in their life, I just pray for them. Every time, whether they come on my mind in a good way or in a bad way, maybe the, the situation that you went through comes back and the devil tries to discourage you or whatever, just call their name out, pray for them, bless them. Anything you can think of that you feel led to pray over them, you pray it over them. And I found that through that process, it, it causes... You don't do it for yourself, but it does cause your heart to remain soft to them. Yes. Okay, so we're out of time. And, uh, man, can I leave you with the next question to discuss while we eat spaghetti? Yeah, let's do the last question while we eat spaghetti. Hey, Pete, you got an Android back there? No, it's a Chrome. Last one. Many hands make light work. I know that's not, that's not a real question, is it? I better ask the real question. Many hands make light work. If that's true, then its opposite is also true, isn't it? Few hands make heavy burdens. So how does that wisdom apply in your home life and in your work life, and how can we as a church uh, apply that wisdom of many hands make light work? And what will happen at home if we don't apply that wisdom? And what will happen at church if we don't apply that wisdom? Stuff for you to think about as you eat spaghetti and discuss. So, I am going to make the prayer team available. Go ahead, let's, let's stand for a benediction. If you're on the prayer team, you go ahead and come forward. And we are going to 